0: Welcome to the November 2013 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ayla Dalgan. This month, a hormone therapy with the potential to cure chronic myelogenous leukemia.
1: Trying to alter the niche functions may be successful in eradicating or certainly in in decreasing the leukemic clone.
0: New uses of hedgehog inhibitors, both in brain cancer and in an aberrant bone growth disease. These drugs have the potential to be repurposed. Plus, the challenges of tobacco-related regulatory science, and Novartis' neuroscience division gets a reboot. But first, a new niche in CML treatment. The Leukemia Therapy Gleevec is often described as a wonder drug. It helped turn chronic myelogenous leukemia from a death sentence into a manageable condition. But even a wonder drug like Gleevec has its limitations. One issue is that people with CML usually have to continue taking Gleevec for the rest of their lives. And if they stop taking the drug, then their cancers often come roaring back. That's because while Gleevec kills most cancer cells in the blood, it doesn't eliminate the leukemia stem cells that help fuel the disease. So researchers have been on the hunt for new drugs to target those leukemia stem cells, particularly in the bone marrow microenvironment, where they are thought to reside. And researchers at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston think they may have found such a drug in the form of something called parathyroid hormone.
2: We were able to show that the number of leukemia-initiating cells or leukemia stem cells is reduced in a microenvironment stimulated by parathyroid hormone.
0: That's Daniela Krause. She's a postdoctoral research fellow at MGH and a specialist in hematology and transfusion medicine. She is also the first author of a new paper in Nature Medicine that describes how treatment with parathyroid hormone can destroy leukemia stem cells and yield improved outcomes in mouse models of CML. These mice received a combination of parathyroid hormone, or PTH, and Gleevec, which is also known as imatinib.
2: Although we could not significantly prolong the survival in all recipients, we had a couple of mice that, after Five weeks of co-treatment with imatinib and PTH were still alive, and we were able to achieve um, long-term survival in about 33% of mice that were co-treated with imatinib and PTH.
0: Now, that might not sound so impressive, but keep in mind that all the mice that just received imatinib ultimately succumbed to the disease.
2: It does suggest that at least in some recipients, the combination of imatinib plus PTH is beneficial.
0: Krause and her colleagues would like to move the research into the clinic. In theory, that shouldn't be too hard considering that PTH is already used in people to treat osteoporosis. As such, doctors know that PTH is relatively safe for human use. Now they just have to test the drug for efficacy in leukemia patients. Krause hopes to launch such a clinical trial soon, but one obstacle in her path remains money. PTH is just a really expensive drug, and Krause's team would need to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars just to run a small proof-of-concept trial. Fortunately, the drug's manufacturer, Eli Lilly, might be willing to provide a comparable drug for free.
2: We have been in contact with uh, Lilly, and it's very likely that we might be given a a PTH analogue Um, that will likely have the very same effects on the bone and hopefully on the chronic myelogenous leukemia instead of the actual PTH. And we're still discussing this with Lily and hope to move forward with this in the future.
0: Brian Huntley is a hematologist at the Cambridge Institute for Medical Research in the UK. He wasn't involved in the research, but he was impressed enough with the mouse data to favor clinical testing.
1: Certainly, there's there's enough promise from the the, the paper. I think that um, these things should go forward, and and we should be targeting these things in the human setting.
0: If it works, says Huntley, researchers may be one step closer to an actual long-term cure—yes, cure—for CML.
1: Trying to alter the niche functions may be successful in eradicating, or certainly in, in decreasing the leukemic clone, and is one of the things that that, that we would want to attempt to try and not just control, but to actually cure uh, chronic myeloid leukemia.
0: And that's what I'd call a wonder drug. You can read all about the effect of PTH on leukemia stem cells in the November issue of Nature Medicine, including why the hormone therapy seems to work for chronic myelogenous leukemia, but not for acute myeloid leukemia. Coming up why a stem cell scientist left academia to lead a new neurosciences unit at a big pharma firm.
3: If, if one's interested in developing new medicines, if you really want to treat patients, if you really want to make a difference for people, you want to be in a place where that's that's the whole mission of the institution.
0: But first, hedging on Hedgehog. Last year, the FDA approved the first drug that blocks the so-called hedgehog pathway. The drug, a small molecule from Roche called Vizmodigib or Erevige, is only approved to treat a rare type of skin cancer known as basal cell carcinoma. But scientists expect big things from this and other hedgehog inhibitors, with many of these drugs now in clinical trials for a number of different types of cancers, including those of the prostate, lung, pancreas, breast, and brain. And it's not just as monotherapies where these drugs might have promise. A new report in Nature Medicine suggests that combining hedgehog inhibition with a drug that blocks the PI3 kinase pathway could help in the treatment of glioblastoma brain cancer. To learn more, I spoke with study authors Mariella gruber Filbin and Rosalind Siegel from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and I started by asking Mariella to describe the study results.
4: So we started with primary glibostoma tissue taken from patients, operated in our institution and nationwide, and grew them in a specific way. It's called neurospheres. We grow glibostoma in a way that it keeps the most aggressive features, like tumor initiation in vivo, infiltration, all these like bad features of glibostoma. And we treated them in culture first with one of the inhibitors, the PO3 kinase inhibitor, and did not see any effect. Then we treated them with the sonic hedgehog inhibitor, the smoothness inhibitor, and did not see any effect at all. And only if we inhibit those two pathways together, can you get these tumor cells to die off.
0: And in the mice, how pronounced a tumor regression were you seeing?
4: So we waited. The way we ex- um, designed our experiment is that we injected. Um, human tumor cells into mouse brains, and then waited until those um, tumors hit the exponential growth phase of their growth, basically, and then started treatment. And we did that in order to mimic the patient situation as closely as possible. And so we started treatment, and the PI3 kinase inhibitor by itself uh, limited tumor growth to a certain extent for a certain amount of time. But then those tumor cells just broke through and took off again. And only that group that was treated with both inhibitors at the same time, um, in those groups we were able to see a small tumor and no growth over time.
0: Ross, do we know how these two pathways, the PI3 kinase and the hedgehog, are actually working together to have this tumorigenic effect?
5: So there had been a number of studies suggesting that there are interactions between the two pathways, but how they interact and what are critical nodes of interaction between the two really was not not known. And one of the things that we found very exciting in the work was being able to identify S6 kinase, a very critical component Um, in regulating growth as a node of interaction that's influenced both by the sonic pathway and by the PI3 kinase pathway and is particularly important for the glioblastomas.
0: So at the same time that this dual agent approach is going forward, perhaps this also opens the door Mm -hmm. to a new target for monotherapy.
5: Exactly. And Nathaniel Gray, who's one of the chemists here, is really pursuing that very actively.
0: In this study, you guys used a range of different drugs, both experimental ones that you can order from lab supplies companies as well as drugs that are actually in clinical development for various types of cancer. And, and there are such pi 3 kinase inhibitors in phase 3 or actually now in registration, as well as at least one hedgehog-inhibitive drug that's been approved for a different type of cancer. Have you taken the approach you're presenting here the the two-pronged double-agent approach actually into human clinical trials for this indication for the brain cancer?
4: Yeah, so that's something we are most excited about. Um, our two drugs or lead substances in our paper, BKM120 as the PA3 kinase inhibitor and LD225 as the smooth end or inhibitor, um, are now in clinical trials as in 2012. They started in adults treating glioblastoma patients as well as other recurrent cancers. And we're right now working on getting this trial started in pediatric patients so in kids with brain tumors as well.
0: Now, two drugs means perhaps double the efficacy, or you can see additive or synergistic effects, I suppose, but it also means more toxicity, and especially when we're talking about drugs that cross the blood-brain barrier and are going everywhere in the body, notably in the brain. Did you see elevated toxicity in your mouse models, and is that something that you're worried about as we move into human development, Roz?
5: Um, so we, one has to be worried about that, obviously. We did not, we were looking for toxicity. What we saw was really the toxicity of each individual one drug. We did not see any real combination effect in our mice. The reason that the um, clinical trial is going to be done as a phase one over again and why it's in dose escalation is because they have to go back to the beginning now that they're combining two drugs and try them together at low doses and gradually increase them and making sure there's no significant new toxicity in that combination. And um, based on the mice, we're hopeful that that won't happen, but that's that's the reason you always have to go back to phase one.
0: Mariella Gruber-Fillman and Rosalind Siegel. Now, it's not just in cancer where hedgehog signaling goes awry. A new study in nature medicine led by researchers at the U.S. National Human Genome Research Institute suggests that aberrant hedgehog signaling is also involved in a bone disease called heterotopic ossification. This condition can stem from genetic defects or trauma. Either way, the result is the same. A pathological formation of extraskeletal bone where it's not supposed to be. Jean Regard, a study author now at the Novartis Institutes of Biomedical Research, describes what his team saw when they blocked the hedgehog pathway in mouse models of this disease.
6: So we knocked it out using two different mechanisms. We used uh, both a genetic mechanism by knocking down GLEE transcription factors and also pharmacologically by by using uh, hedgehog pathway antagonists. And in both cases, what we saw was that by decreasing the hedgehog signaling in these animal models, we could actually rescue the heterotopic ossification phenotype, suggesting this was really a uh, hedgehog-driven phenomenon.
0: And when you say rescue, are we talking no more aberrant bone growth?
6: Uh, I wouldn't say that. We could significantly decrease the heterotopic ossification. It really wasn't a complete rescue. It's possible that if we could do a better job of knocking down the hedgehog pathway, we could get a better rescue. But I wouldn't call it partial. It was more than partial, but it wasn't complete.
0: Well, a better than partial rescue is better than what we've got now, which is mostly nothing. And what we do have now are these hedgehog inhibitors, um, one of which was approved last year, I think, for cancer, and there's a number of other ones in clinical development. So from your findings, do you think then that these same cancer drugs should now perhaps be tried in either the people with these rare genetic disorders that lead to this problem or perhaps some of these trauma victims?
6: Um, absolutely. We think that they that these drugs have the potential to be repurposed now for the therapeutic treatment of heterotopic ossification. Uh, what we saw in the paper was that uh, inhibiting the hedgehog pathway at the level of the smoothened receptor didn't appear to be as beneficial as when we inhibited the pathway at the level of the glee transcription factors. So in our thinking, we might need GLE antagonists for therapeutic uh, modulation of this disease rather than smoothen antagonists. Most of what we see coming through the development pipeline right now are smoothen antagonists.
0: And we should say glee and smoothen, these are different nodes in the hedgehog signaling pathway.
6: Exactly, exactly. Smoothen is the dominant receptor in the pathway, and glees are the downstream transcription factors.
0: Hedgehog signaling does a lot of things in the body. Is there a worry that giving these drugs... For this one effect, could have detrimental consequences.
6: Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a uh, that's a major concern. So when you're developing therapeutics for cancer, the the therapeutic window, which is to say the the dose which gives you efficacy, uh, kind of divided by the dose that gives you toxicity, that difference doesn't need to be so. Whereas if you're taking a very healthy individual or a child even who is otherwise healthy other than the heterotopic ossification, uh, a cancer treatment really wouldn't be something that, um, you know, would have an acceptable toxicity for a normal person. So uh, it's going to be important to identify hedgehog inhibitors, which have a very good therapeutic window and are really quite safe. And as you mentioned, it's an important pathway for a number of things. So for example, the traumatic form of this injury, there's a number of things going on. Most importantly, is perhaps wound healing. And so uh, we don't want to inhibit heterotopic ossification and inhibit wound healing. So we would really need to be extremely careful in exactly how and when we inhibit hedgehog signaling in these uh, patients.
0: Jean Regard. His study can be found in the November issue of Nature Medicine. And if you haven't had enough hedgehog already, the November issue also features an entire focus section on cancer, which includes a review article dedicated to hedgehog signaling. All that and more can be found at nature.com naturemedicine
4: I'm not the kind to
0: complain that I never had a girl to love. Many fine girl, I tried hard to know, but I think I never tried enough.
3: Sitting one day by myself, and I'm thinking what could be wrong. When this funny little hedgehog comes
0: running up to me and it starts up to sing me the song. Oh, you know all the words and you sung all the notes, but you never quite learned the song she sung. Neuroscience in recent years has started to look like a graveyard for drug development. Many large pharmaceutical firms have either eliminated their brain disorder programs or cut back on such research heavily. The drug giant Novartis seemed to have made exactly this kind of drastic change two years ago when the company announced plans to shutter its neurosciences operation at its global headquarters in Basel, Switzerland. But Novartis made it known at the time that its intention was to ultimately set up a new division at the company's U.S. base here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, not far from where I work. Fast forward to 2013, and Novartis has hired someone to lead that new division, the Stanford University stem cell scientist Ricardo Dolmetsch. Now, if that name sounds familiar to listeners of the Nature Medicine podcast, it's because I interviewed Ricardo Dolmetsch a couple of years ago, when he published a paper in the journal describing how he had used induced pluripotent stem cells derived from patients with a genetic form of autism known as Timothy syndrome. Excited to meet Dolmetsch, I headed over to the Novartis Institutes of Biomedical Research here to ask him why he chose to leave academia and join Novartis.
3: If one's interested in developing new medicines, if you really want to treat patients if you really want to make a difference for people, you want to be in a place where that's that's the whole mission of the institution, and that's why I came here.
0: We chatted together for a while for a Q&A that appears in the November issue of Nature Medicine. I asked Dolmedge how he thought his background in stem cell biology could be an asset in his new post.
3: I bring a set of sort of cutting-edge technologies uh, that I think were not previously used in drug discovery. I mean, one of them, and I think perhaps the, the one that was most attractive to Novartis, is this idea that you can actually make biopsies of people with genetic disorders.
0: Moving beyond the personal, Dolmetsch explained how the rebooted neuroscience division is going to be different from the old unit in Switzerland. Specifically, it's going to have two main focuses.
3: One focus is on genetically defined orphan diseases, where we think that we understand or we have a scientific rationale and we know something about the population and therefore we think that there's a faster clinical plan and we think we can address a serious unmet medical need and then we hope that we'll be able to expand those to a much larger population
0: that's approach number one and approach
3: number two approach two is to take advantage of what has been the other revolution in neurobiology which has been the understanding of circuits and the fact that we now know about some of the cells that modulate certain behaviors, and we think that we can develop drugs that attack those circuits more intelligently than we could in the past because we know those circuits better.
0: You can read more from my interview with Ricardo Dolmetsch in the latest issue of Nature Medicine. Plus, we'll link to his previous research on Timothy syndrome on our website, nature.com naturemedicine. Lastly this month, we have a story on a new push by the National Institutes of Health and the Food and Drug Administration to use science to better inform regulatory decisions surrounding cigarettes and other tobacco products. Nature Medicine news intern Ariel Duam-Ross explains.
7: Most doctors and smokers long ago stopped doubting the dangerous health effects of tobacco. And yet, we still struggle to imagine a world without cigarette advertising and tobacco products behind store counters. The question is, which of these should be allowed and which should not? The concept of tobacco regulation is fairly tricky especially when you look at it from the perspective of the regulator, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. After all, the FDA is supposed to monitor products that improve our health and nutrition, not harm us. So the fact that the agency is also charged with deciding which tobacco products can be sold in the United States is complicated, to say the least. That's why more research is needed into how the FDA should regulate tobacco products, says Helen Meissner.
1: They need to understand tobacco products in order to enable them to review tobacco products.
7: Meissner is the director of the Tobacco Regulatory Science Program at the National Institutes of Health in Maryland. She's leading a joint effort with the FDA to study how to bring science-based regulation to the manufacturing, marketing, and distribution of tobacco products. In September, the two agencies announced funding for 14 research teams working on tobacco-related projects across the U.S.
1: The 14 centers that were selected cover a very broad range from the very basic to applied science, and they address diversity of tobacco products, health consequences, communications about tobacco, uh, marketing, economics, policy, quite a, a, a range of expertise and topic areas.
7: Together, the 14 teams will form the Tobacco Centers of Regulatory Science. Although the areas being studied are quite diverse, all of them are designed to inform the kinds of decisions that the FDA has to make regarding tobacco products. Implementing this research won't necessarily be easy.
1: I think the biggest challenge really, and it's, it's not a, one that cannot be overcome, but I think the challenge is to make sure that what we're supporting through this program it falls within FDA's regulatory authorities.
7: Now I should note, There is a precedent for this kind of research. Since 2009, when the FDA was granted the authority to regulate cigarettes, cigarette tobacco, and roll your own tobacco, the agency has issued a ban on cigarettes with flavors other than menthol, primarily because of NIH-funded research that demonstrated the tobacco flavoring's ability to attract teenage customers. And in 2010, the FDA also made it illegal to sell cigarettes in vending machines, which do not ID customers, and in packages that contain less than 20 cigarettes, Again, thanks to research on how young people are drawn to smoking. Meissner hopes that the Tobacco Centers of Regulatory Science will have a similar impact going forward.
1: That's what's so exciting about this program, at least to me, is that here we really have um, an arrangement where science can have a direct impact on policy.
7: For now, the program is funded to the tune of $53 million. However, the FDA and the NIH say there is potential for an additional $273 million in grant money over the next five years. With that kind of backing, this program could have a real impact. Let's just hope that all that money and hard work doesn't go up in smoke. For Nature Medicine, I'm Ariel Zurm-Ross.
0: Ariel's interview with Helen Meisner can be found on our blog, Spoonful of Medicine. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine podcast, but there's plenty more to be found in the November issue of The Journal including a news feature about molecular autopsies for unexplained sudden deaths, plus that special cancer focus I mentioned. You should really check it out. It has a whole bunch of interesting reviews and perspective from a who's who of the cancer field. As always, we'd love to hear what you thought about the program. You can email us at medicine at us.nature.com, or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dolgan. Thanks
6: for listening.